Well, my day job, I am a graphic designer. Uh, and while I do a lot of different things as a graphic designer, uh, one of my favorite things that I get to do is brand identity work. And brand identity, uh, if you're not familiar with the term uh, terminology, it's really just a fancy way of saying, you know, all of the visual elements uh, that an organization puts out into the world to kind of project who they are, uh, their identity to their customers. But more specifically, I really love it when I get the opportunity to walk through a rebrand process with a company uh, to help them kind of realize their full potential, to help them grow. Now, when I do rebrand uh, development projects with different customers, sometimes it's just designing a logo and kind of then creating all of the, the new kind of elements of their visual brand that they need to kind of align visually with their new logo. But every so often, a rebrand of a company, it requires a new name. Now, there are a lot of different reasons why a company might need to rename. Maybe their old name is uh, no longer relevant because it's based on the name of a person who's no longer there. Or maybe the company is looking for a name that's more in line with the direction of what they want to do in the future. Uh, maybe they want a name that's just kind of more cool or trendy or marketable. And in some cases, uh, the old name may have come to have such bad associations that in order to move forward, uh, the company needed to reinvent itself down to the name. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a dramatic rebrand project in the Bible that resulted in a new name. You know, after two weeks into our Matthew chapter 1 genealogy, we have come to Isaac's son, Jacob. And God is going to pursue Jacob in his story, and he's going to give him a new name. And in his new name, he's ultimately going to give Jacob and the people who would come after Jacob a new identity as the blessed leader of a new people. So we're going to kick off our time in the Word in Genesis chapter 25. I think you should have it up on the screen. And we're going to be in verses 21 through 26. So read uh, with me on the screen. So Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant the babies jostled with each other within her. And she said, this is, or why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. That dude needed a new name. <laughs> After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. When Heather was pregnant, Micah and Lily, I remember the excitement uh, that we all had when she started to like feel them you know, moving in the belly, right? And it was something that, like, she would invite people into to experience with her, you know, not strangers, thankfully, but like friends and family. And it was so cool to be a part of that. 
that that is not what Rebecca is experiencing in this moment. She's not experiencing that cool feeling of new life inside of her. Something different is happening to her in this story. She's experiencing something that is so physically profound that she finds herself going to God about it. And she asks God, what is happening to me? And it's interesting because the word jostled, they jostled one another in the womb, it actually comes from a Hebrew word that means to crush. Just imagine that going on inside of you as a mom-to-be. And it gives us the picture that they were literally or figuratively striking one another in the womb. They're wrestling it out before they were even born. So God tells her, after she inquires of him, that there are two nations inside of her and that the older would actually serve the younger. And you may know that this is a cultural anomaly. The older would not have served the younger, but God chooses differently. He chooses the second son, Isaac, to be the one who would have the greater inheritance to receive the highest blessing From his father, he chooses Jacob. So Rebecca, she gives birth to her two sons, as we read, Esau, who was the firstborn, and then to Jacob. And Jacob comes out of the womb, grasping his brother's heel. This is weird. I don't know if you've ever experienced a twin birth story. I've never heard of a story like this. Now, these are not words that are merely descriptive. Uh, of what's going on in this birth story with these twin boys. The expression, he grasped the heel, is, a, is an expression that means he deceives. So right at the beginning of Jacob's life, we're getting some clues into his identity as an individual that, that somehow is connected to his name. And we're going to see throughout Jacob's early life this morning that he is indeed a deceiver that he is a supplanter, someone who tries to take a hold, grasp a hold of the the position of another. So how does this play out? The Bible gives us two stories in particular that speak to this. First is the story of Jacob taking advantage of his brother and scheming to grab a hold of this thing that he calls the birthright that would have been reserved for the eldest son. So follow along with me as we continue in the story in Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 33. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Mom and dad are not helping with the conflict between these two brothers in this moment. Uh, And once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, this birthright, the right of the, the firstborn son, had to, both, had to do with both position in the family, and it also had to do with inheritance. 
By birthright, the firstborn would have inherited the leadership role of the family after his father had died. He would have inherited the authority of his father and his name. And he was also entitled to a double portion of the inheritance, the, the stuff, as it were. Now, I'm assuming that as a young man growing up, Jacob knew what God had said about him to his mother, Rebecca, when she inquired of the Lord. And Jacob here, he's starting to go after it in full force. He's doing whatever it takes to grab a hold of this thing that God has said about him. And he's doing it in his way. He's striving and he's scheming. He's taking advantage for a position of blessing. And he's not waiting on the Lord and receiving it. Now, if we fast forward in the story a bit, we come to the end of Isaac's life on earth in chapter 27. You don't have to turn there, but in in chapter 27, the first four verses, we learn that Isaac is now old. And he is, I mean, he was already old, but like this is like Bible old. Like he's old, right? Uh, And he's like old and he is blind. And because he doesn't know the day of his death, he wanted to be sure that while he could, that he could impart his all-important and prophetic paternal blessing to his son, not to Jacob, to his firstborn son Esau. And we see... This idea of blessing show up quite a few times in the scriptures. Uh, in fact, we see it in three very specific instances just leading up to this text in the book of Genesis. At the very beginning of the Bible, in chapter 1 of Genesis, God, he gives his blessing to Adam and Eve, and he tells them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it or rule over it. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, after the flood, God blesses Noah and his sons. And, he's, and he tells him the same thing. He says to, to Noah, be fruitful, fill the earth. And then the, the text says that he, he gives the creatures of the earth into their hands that, that Noah and his new family would rule over creation. And then in Genesis chapter 12, as we looked at uh, three weeks ago, uh, when Adam kicked off the series, we, we saw that God blesses. He pours out his blessing on Abraham. And he promises to make Abraham into a great nation. He promises to make Abraham's name great. And that those who blessed Abraham and his family would be blessed. And that those who cursed him would be cursed. And that God would bless the world through Abraham and his family. So this, this blessing is this expression of of God's desire and His intent to pronounce His goodness out into the world. And His people would experience blessing and in turn be instruments through which God would continue to pour out His blessing into the world. In a sense, they would multiply and they would fill the earth with God's blessing. Now, Jacob, in his desire for this good thing. He conspires with his mother, Rebecca, to deceive his dad. That never happens, does it? So Isaac, he calls for Esau, and he asks his son to go out and hunt for him and to prepare a meal, after which Isaac was going to give 
Esau this all-important blessing. But mom hears it. She's listening in on this exchange, and she says, nope, sorry, dad, that's not happening. Uh, And she comes up with a plan that she's going to cook up a meal for her husband just the way her husband likes it, and she's going to have her favorite beloved son, Jacob, take the meal to his father before Esau could return from the hunt. She dresses up her son in Esau's clothes so that he would smell like his brother. She covers his neck and his hands with goat skin so that he would feel like his brother. And Jacob brings Isaac the meal. And after an exchange where Isaac is a little bit skeptical, he smells the smell of the the field on his son. He feels the hair on his neck and his hands. And the deception, it works perfectly. It works as planned because Isaac blesses Jacob. And listen to the words of blessing that Isaac gives to his son. In chapter 27, verses 28 through 29, he says, May God give you heaven's dew, the earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. Abundance and inheritance. May the nations serve you and the peoples bow down to you be, to be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. He gives them a blessing of authority and rule. And may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And we see that it is the very blessing of Abraham that Isaac in this moment is transferring to his son Jacob, although doing it unknowingly. And all of this is important for us to understand. All of this backstory is important for us to, us to understand because in, in both of these stories, Jacob is living out his identity as a, as a deceiver, as a schemer, as a supplanter to grab after the blessing. And where does it lead? Well, Esau, as you can imagine, is not happy about the situation. After learning that Isaac has given his important blessing to Jacob, he declares, isn't Jacob, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he has taken my blessing. And holding a grudge against his brother, he says to himself, all right, the days of my father, uh, mourning my father, are near. Then I am going to kill my brother Jacob. So Rebecca, she, she has a habit of listening in on these things. She finds this out, uh, and she comes up with this plan to get Jacob to flee uh, the family, uh, flee from Esau, and to go to this place called Haran, where uh, they, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, instruct Jacob to find a wife from among the daughters of her brother Laban. So here we find Jacob in kind of a bad place in the story. Uh, it's one of his own making. Uh, he's made the bed and now he's got to sleep in it. But he's on the run. He's on the run from his brother Esau. He's alone. He has left his family behind. He's left everything that he has known his entire life behind. And his life is literally, literally in danger. 
Now, whether this is intentional, whether it's poetic, whether it's merely descriptive, I don't know. But it seems to me that the text that we're about to read is painting a picture of where Jacob is spiritually because we learn that as he leaves, he gets to a place where the sun is setting and Jacob is in darkness. And he lays down his head, he finds a rock for a pillow and he goes to sleep. And it's in this moment, in this place of darkness, in this place of solitude, in this place of running away from everything that he's ever known, that God inserts himself into Jacob's life, and Jacob has a profound encounter with God in the form of a dream. So we read in Genesis chapter 28, uh, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba, and he had set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he had stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give to you and to your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, even to Haran. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. This is an interesting dream that Jacob has. And I don't know if this is I don't know if this this is relevant, but as I read this text about this dream, I'm reminded of this story in chapter eleven of Genesis, where the people They come together and they decide to build a tower that reaches to the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. And that kind of feels like what Jacob's been trying to do at this point, to make a name for himself, to to receive the inheritance, the authority of his father and the blessing. And in this story, it's called the Tower of Babel. You may have heard of it. Uh, But the people, they wanted to build this great city. They They wanted significance. And they wanted to stay put. They didn't want to scatter like God had called them to do. So they really, they come together to build this great city, this tall tower that would keep them from being scattered over the face of the whole earth. And it says of them that they wanted to make their name great. And this is the promise that God has made to Abraham. And this is the promise that God is giving to Jacob. That he'd make Abraham into a great nation and that he'd bless him and make his name great. And it didn't work out well for the people who created this great city and this Tower of Babel because God comes down, He confuses their language, and He scatters them so that they would stop building this great city and stop trying to make a name for themselves. And I think that's what God is doing in Jacob's life in this moment. He is coming down so that Jacob will stop striving and scheming to make his name great. Jacob learns in this dream that the path of blessing, the path that God himself 
is through God Himself. It's like God is saying to Jacob, you can't grab a hold of this. It needs to come from Me. And God affirms the meaning of this dream that that, uh, Jacob is having uh, in this strange vision of this stairway to heaven with the angels ascending and descending on it with the affirmation of the promise that God had made to Abraham. That He would give Jacob the descendants. That He would give Jacob the land. That He would make them like the dust of the earth. That He would cause all the peoples of the earth to be blessed through Jacob and his family. And that He would be with Jacob wherever He went. And that He would bring Jacob back to the land that He was leaving. And that He alone is the stairway, the path to ultimate blessing. Have you ever experienced a parallel of this story in your life? How have you and I experienced moments where we have labored and strived to get after the thing that only God can give us? How do we try to find approval from God? Or how do we try to find approval from other people even through our own striving and our own efforts and sometimes through deception and scheming and dishonesty? How do we strive after the longings of our heart doing everything that we can in order to find significance and acceptance and security? How have we gotten it wrong in life like Jacob and found ourselves alone and in the dark and on the run reeling from the pain of our own mistakes? This story teaches us that God meets us in the dark places of our life. And He gives us the promise that He is always with us. This story teaches us that God has made a way for us to receive every blessing that He has for us. To actually experience, not just in the future, but now the very significance and acceptance and security that we desire And in John chapter 1, verse 51, I don't think we have a verse for this one for the screen, but Jesus, He lets us in on a little secret. He tells us that He is, in fact, the stairway in Jacob's vision. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to Himself and Jesus would make a way. He would be, in fact, the way to bridge the gap, to create the pathway between earth and heaven. So what would it look like for you and for me to see the striving in our life? For me, so much of it is found in the posture of my heart. Instead of uh, searching and striving for the acceptance of others, especially after I have failed and and messed up, God, He he teaches me that through the Gospel, I can lean into the acceptance that I already have in Jesus, and that I can get up and that I can walk in the assurance that God is with me. So that's what Jacob does in the story. He gets up. He gets up from his sleep. He gets up from this dream. Uh, He makes an altar from the rock that he had been sleeping on. And he, makes, uh, he calls the place where he had 
had this dream, Bethel, which means house of God. And he vowed that the Lord would be his God. And he gets up and he continues on his journey. Now, at this point, we're going to skip over like a 20-year period of Jacob's story. So to make a long story short, Jacob, he does in fact arrive in Haran. He finds himself now on the receiving end, if you're familiar with the story, of quite a bit of deception from the hand of his uncle Laban. But God, he blesses Jacob in this place. He increases his possessions. He grew, God uh, causes Jacob to grow exceedingly prosperous. He grows his family. And God, after a period of 20 years in this this place, he calls Jacob now to go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. And this is exactly what God had 20 years before uh, told Jacob that he would do in this vision, in this encounter with God through the dream. That you will, that you will come back to this place that you are now fleeing and that I will be with you. So Jacob, he obeys God. He gathers his family. He gathers all of his possessions and he sets out. And there's so much more to the story uh, and what he was running away from, from his time in Haran, fleeing from his uncle Laban. And there's just so much drama in this family that we just don't have time uh, to talk about this morning. So I encourage you to, to read it this week. But Jacob, he obeys God, he gathers his family, he gathers his possession, and he sets out that there is a problem that is on Jacob's mind. Because at the other end of his journey is Esau, right? At the other end of his journey is his brother who wants to kill him, who he has done a great um, disservice to, which is kind of an understatement. Uh, And the last time Jacob saw Uh, his brother, he wanted to kill him. And at this point in the story, Jacob returning uh, to his home, worried about his brother, fleeing from his uncle, we really see the kindness of God in the story. Because in chapter 32 of Genesis, verses 1-2, through we read that, that Jacob, as he is going, as he is walking in obedience to God, uh, the angels of God meet him on the way. And when Jacob saw them, he says, this is the camp of God. He actually sees this camp of God, these angels of God in this moment of fear and anxiety and worry and fleeing his uncle and heading towards his brother. This would have been a much-needed reminder of God's protection over Jacob. Uh, Meeting Jacob's anxious heart with a visible sign of God's presence. Have you ever experienced that in a moment of despair where God has given you exactly what you needed? You've, You've heard the Word or read the Scripture or a friend has come alongside of you and given you exactly what you needed in that moment. This is what Jacob needed to know that God was indeed with him. But this excitement, this exclamation that he makes about these two camps, this camp of God and uh, meeting him, these angels, it's met with a little bit of reality. Because Jacob had learned through a messenger that he had sent ahead to Esau that Esau is now coming out to meet him. 
Esau is not alone. Uh, he has 400 men with him. And in Jacob's mind, this is not a, uh, a housewarming party. This is not a greeting. This is an army. And needless to say, Jacob is experiencing in this moment all of the feels. He's experiencing the excitement of having seen the angels of God and knowing that God is with him, but he's experiencing the great fear and the distress that has ultimately been brought about by his own deceitful dealings with his brother. Have you ever had a failure in your life hanging over your head for 20 years? A failing in your past that it still comes back to mind and it haunts you and it paralyzes you with anxiety and fear? Because this is what Jacob is experiencing in this moment, carrying the fear and the anxiety of what he has done to his brother for 20 years and now now he's got to face it. So Jacob does two things in this moment. First, he comes up with a plan to divide his family and his possessions uh, into two camps so that if Esau attacked one, at least some of his family, at least some of his things would be able to escape. But then he prays to God in the story. And this is the first time in the, the narrative that we read about Jacob that he prays to God. It's the first time we read it. It's amazing. Genesis chapter 32, verse 9 through 12. This is what Jacob prays. He says, Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. But now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. It's like Jacob in this moment is saying to God, okay, I'm going to do the thing that you have told me to do. But remember, God, you told me that you were going to to give me this great big family. And the way I see it, I'm walking into a situation that is going to accomplish the exact opposite of that. So I'm just going to remind you, God, of what you said you were going to do. And now I'm going to go do the thing. And there's power in this posture. Remembering Uh, Jacob is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. He's trusting in God's commands in the present. And he's walking in obedience to the thing that God is calling him to for his future. I remember when we made the decision uh, to move from Arkansas back to Pennsylvania. We grew up in, Heather and I grew up in Pennsylvania. And we spent a a season of 12 years in Arkansas for uh, work. and a lot of other things. Uh, and I really believe that, you know, after 12 years that, that God was calling us back to Pennsylvania. Uh, he had orchestrated so many circumstances to, to lead us in our hearts uh, in this way. And even though Heather and I and our, and, and, our, and our young family, Micah and Lily, even though we were going back to a place that we knew, uh, it was a home that we had grown up in. We were going back to, 
uh, our family, we were also leaving a life that we had spent 12 years building. And it was kind of bittersweet. You know, we were leaving uh, friends that we had made and a home that we had made over the course of 12 years. And, and we were leaving uh, friends that actually felt like a second family to us. So it was painful. Uh, it was good, but it was painful. And I remember praying to God, okay, God, I don't know what this is going to look like. But I know that you, or I, I really believe that you're calling us to this. I didn't hear the audible voice of God, but I really believe that God was calling us to this move. So I said, all right, I'm, we're going to go. And if things get hard, God, I know that it's you leading us. You see, if it was me that was making the decisions, if it was me that was doing the leading, I wouldn't have been able to trust the decision if the things got hard. Now, God in his kindness, he led us here. He led us to the Lehigh Valley. He leads us to this amazing church. He leads us to hope. He leads us to this church family. And, and in circumstances that were really similar to, to Jacob's dream, God taught me and our family in such a profound way that the only way we could receive God's blessing was to see striving and to just receive it. So back to Jacob. Remember, he divided his camp. We see that he prays. Uh, he then selects these extravagant gifts uh, that he is going to uh, send ahead to his brother Esau in hopes that he might win his brother's favor. And we see that there's a sense that Jacob is still like trying to work it out. He's still striving. He's still planning and trying to earn the favor of his brother. And then he takes his two wives who are still with him and their servants, and he takes his children... And he takes all of his possessions and he sends them across a stream. And Jacob is left alone. And more to the point, he it seems like he's creating space to be alone. And it's in this place of fear of his brother Esau and solitude that Jacob has another encounter with God. And we read in Genesis chapter 32 what this encounter looked like in verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Imagine how weird this must have been. This man shows up, and he's just wrestling with Jacob. It's bizarre. And when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he replied. And then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. And just look at the way that Jacob's identity Identity is being reshaped in this moment, being reworked in this moment from a deceiver, from a supplanter, and from one who is striving to take. Then through a, a dream, gaining an awareness that the, the blessing, it comes from God alone. 
And then experiencing God's blessing during what was really a 20-year exile for him. And now being in a place where he is wrestling with this man and he is brought to a place of being wounded and weak. And Jacob's life in this moment, it has come full circle, hasn't it? In the womb, he wrestled with his brother Esau. When he grew up, he spent his life trying to grab a hold of God's blessing. And now Jacob is wrestling with this man all night for a blessing. And there's some mystery as to who this man is. The text that we read uh, in this chapter, it infers that that Jacob thinks that he's wrestling with God. Uh, In the book of Hosea, we, we read that it was an angel that Jacob was wrestling with. Either way, whether it is God himself or an angel, Jacob is having a divine encounter in this moment. And it changes his life. And at daybreak, the man tells Jacob, after All night of wrestling at daybreak, the man tells Jacob, it's time to let go. And he touches Jacob in a way that would wound him and weaken him. And Jacob still holds on. Still he strives for blessing. Hosea chapter 12 verse 4 says that Jacob, he wept and he begged for the favor of this man. And what does the man do in response to Jacob's request. He asks Jacob a profound question. He says, what is your name? And there is so much to this question. Because Jacob must declare in his name his identity that is all wrapped up in his name. He must confess to God, I am Jacob the deceiver. And in this moment, God graciously gives Jacob a new name. He gives him a new identity. He declares, your name will no longer be Jacob, which means he deceives. But it will be Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And a name that means struggles with God for sure could also be interpreted as God prevails. Jacob's new identity, his rebrand, if you will, is that he has overcome because of his encounter with God. And it wasn't him that prevails. It was God who has prevailed. And this is the Gospel. We strive and we struggle and we fail, but God prevails. He graciously is willing to enter into our mess. He is willing to wrestle with us all night. And He gives us this amazing promise that He will not leave us. The story of Jacob's life, it continues that the the sun rises above Jacob and he was limping because of his hip. And he looks up, it says, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And to be sure, it was better for Jacob to face Esau with a limp and with a new identity after having had an encounter with God than it was for him to face his brother Esau in his own strength. Now, if you're wondering what happens, the encounter with Esau goes like really amazing. 
Jacob, uh, he carries all of this anxiety and guilt with him for 20 years. And what actually happens is that, that Esau runs out to meet Jacob and he embraces his brother. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. And together they just weep. And, and this was not the encounter that Jacob had imagined and built up in his mind, but it was the encounter that God, in his transforming power, graciously gave to him. Jacob, he eventually, uh, in the text, he eventually returns to Bethel where uh, God calls him to be the blessed leader of a new people that would begin as 12 sons who would eventually become 12 tribes and a great nation. But this story isn't ultimately about Jacob. And it's not even about us. It's especially not about us. We look no further to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Just hours before Jesus' arrest, before his trial, before his crucifixion. And in that moment, we see a man who is wrestling with God. And he's doing so not for a blessing for himself, but he's wrestling with God for the blessing of the entire world. He is setting aside his will, his human desire, and Jesus becoming obedient to death on a cross, was wounded, and he was weakened, and he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace, it was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed, we receive the blessing. You see, Jacob Rather, Jesus, excuse me, is the ultimate Jacob in this story. And Jesus, in Jesus, God is ready to give us the blessing to make us into a new people. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus about this. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-8, through Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the One He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. And I think this morning God is asking us an important question. He's asking us, what is your name? And we can really answer this question in one of two ways. We can answer with the name that we have made for ourselves, or we can answer it with the name that God wants to give us. You see, the reality is that we all come into this place with a different story, with a different past, 
and with a different name. Maybe like Jacob, your name is Deceiver. That's the name that you tell yourself over and over again is true of you. Or maybe your name that you tell yourself over and over again is that, that it's failure. Or maybe you see that in your life that you, you, you work too much and, and, and your identity or your name is you're wrapped up in that and you, you're a workaholic. Or maybe your name is addict. Or maybe it's sin or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe your name that you tell yourself is I'm not good enough. Or maybe it's like one of those really long names, like people who have like three middle names and then like their last name is, is hyphenated and it's just like this ridiculously long name. Maybe your name is, oh, I work really hard to keep it all together and I just can't seem to measure up. Maybe it's a name that you've carried for 20 years. Maybe it's a name that you've carried your entire life. No matter what it has been, this morning God is ready to give us a new name. In Jesus, He is giving us the name of a son and a daughter. This is the ultimate blessing. Will you and I stop striving to get it and simply receive it this morning? Let's pray.